ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so continuing with بلوغ المرام in the chapter of At-Tahara, the chapter of purification, under the subsection Nawaqid al-Wudu, those issues or those affairs that nullify the wudu of a person, that break the wudu of a person. <coughs> so we've now reached the hadith of Abu Huraira. Radiallahu anhu qal, qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, من غسل ميتا فليغسل ومن حمله فليتوضا أخرجه أحمد والنسائي والترمذي وحسنه وقال أحمد لا يصح في هذا الباب شيء. This hadith of Abu Huraira it says that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said whoever washes the person who has died an individual who has died, then that person is washed, and then the shrouding is done, and then he's buried, etc. But the washing must take place of that dead person. So whoever washes the person who has died, and washing that person, it is, as the Shaykh says, fard kifaya. وَهُوَ فَرْضٌ kifaya عَلَى مَنْ عَلِمَ بِهِ مِنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ And that is something which is fard kifaya, meaning that at least someone or some of the Muslims must do that. If a person dies, then at least some of the people must go and wash that person. And it's not a necessity that everybody has to do it. It's not a necessity that everyone has to do it, but some from amongst the believers have to go and do that. And when some of the believers go and do that, then the sin is released or the responsibility is released from everyone else. وَكُلُّ مَيِّتٍ مِنَ الْمُسْلِمِينَ يَجِبُ أَنْ يُغْسَلْ كَمَا سَيَأْتِي فِي كِتَابِ الْجَنَائِزِ And everybody who dies from the Muslims, then it is obligatory that they should be washed. And the details of that issue, the details and the specific scenarios that are going to be mentioned about that will come later in the chapter of the funerals, the chapter of the funeral processions, etc. For example, there are exceptions for example, a martyr who dies in a battle, then this individual is not washed. Also, for example, if it is not physically possible to wash somebody who has died, sometimes a person may die and it is physically impossible to be able to wash that person. The Shaykh says, For example, somebody has been in a severe accident. And their body is in pieces and it is crushed and everything is done to it and it's impossible to be able to wash it. The body is in pieces and it's crushed and it's torn due to the, some severe accident or whatever occurred. Then it's not possible to be able to do it. Or there might be some preventative factor, some issue which prevents you from being able to wash that person. فَإِنَّهُ يُوَمَّمُ بِالْتُرَابِ وَلَا يُغَسَّلُ Then in that case, if for example there was some reason why you couldn't wash the body of a person, then the shaykh says even the tayammum can be done upon that person. But the details of all of that will come later in the chapter of the funerals. So here it says, مَنْ غَسَّلَ مَيِّتًا Whoever washes, مَنْ غَسَّلَ مَيِّتًا Whoever washes the dead person, meaning, Whoever physically touches that person and washes him. Whoever physically is going to touch the corpse and move it around and pour the water and touch the corpse, etc. That's what's meant by the one who washes the dead person. That's what this hadith is talking about. Therefore, the person who helps with the washing of the body but is not directly washing the body himself is not included in this hadith. For example, somebody stands next to the body and pours the water. And somebody else is actually washing. The one who's pouring the water, he's not included in these issues we're going to talk about. But what we're talking about here is the one who actually washes and touches the body. 
Not the one who stands there, pours the water, or passes uh, other equipment or whatever, but the one who physically washes. فَلْيَغْتَسِلْ The hadith says, so whoever does that, who physically touches the corpse and washes it, فَلْيَغْتَسِلْ Meaning that this person must then go and make the full ghusl. He has to go and make the full ghusl over all of his body. And as a part of the ghusl, he needs to make the wudu too. وَمِنْ أَجْلِ ذَلِكَ سَاقَهُ الْمُصَنِّ فِي بَابِ نَوَاقِدِ الْوُضُوءِ لِيَسْتَدِلَّ بِهِ عَلَى أَنَّ تَغْسِيلَ الْمَيِّتِ مِنْ نَوَاقِدِ الْوُضُوءِ So this hadith indicates that a person who physically washes a corpse, he needs to go and make the full ghusl afterwards. And a part of that full ghusl is the wudu. So what does the hadith indicate therefore? We're in the chapter of those things that nullify the wudu of a person. What does it mean then? Somebody washes the dead person, he needs to go and make wudu and ghusl and everything. That means... It nullifies the wudu. This hadith seems to indicate that a person who washes the dead person, then that person's wudu is nullified. It's broken. He needs to go and make the full ghusl and the wudu and everything again. وَمَنْ حَمَلَهُ And the hadith says, and a person who carries the corpse, carries the dead person, فَلْيَتَوَضَّى Then that person, he has to go and make wudu again. The one who carries the dead person, he has to go make the wudu again. فَظَاهِرُ الْحَدِيثَ أَنَّ مَنْ غَسَلَ الْمَيِّتِ يَجِبُ عَلَيْهِ الْاِغْتِسَالُ وَمَنْ حَمَلَهُ يَجِبُ عَلَيْهِ الْوُضُوءُ So the apparent meaning of the hadith is the one who physically washes the body, he has to go and make the full ghusl. And the one who carries the janazah, carries the funeral procession, the shroud, the coffin, or the, the body rather, not the coffin, the body of the person and the shroud of the person, then that individual has to go make the wudu. Lakin al-imam Ahmad yaqul, however, al-imam Ahmad says, la yasihu fi hadha al-babi shay. Al-imam Ahmad says that in this topic, this subject, there isn't a single hadith which is authentic. That's the opinion of al-imam Ahmad. Ya'ani bithalika annahu la yasihu an nabi sallam marfu'an. Meaning that there isn't any hadith which is marfu' from the statements of the Prophet ﷺ himself about this issue of washing the person and whether you have to make ghusl again, whether you have to make wudu again. Al-Imam Ahmad says there isn't a single hadith which is authentic from the Prophet ﷺ himself, from the words of the Prophet ﷺ in this topic. There isn't a single one which is authentic. وَأَنَّ الصَّحِيحِ مَوْقُوفٌ عَلَىٰ أَبِي هُرَيْرًا and the authentic hadith is actually mawquf, meaning it is the statement of Abu Huraira. That is the fatwa of Abu Huraira. That is the statement of Abu Huraira, not the statement of the Prophet Ahmad. This is the meaning of what Imam Ahmad said. وَقَدْ وَافَقَهُ عَلَىٰ هَذَا الْقَوْطَائِفَ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ And there's a group of scholars who agreed with Imam Ahmad on this. That these are hadith about this topic, they are from the statements of the companions, not linked directly associated to the statements of the Prophet. And some of the scholars, however, they differed with Imam Ahmad on this. Like Al Imam Tirmidhi, and they uh, took the opinion that these ahadith are raised up to the Prophet ﷺ, that they are directly from the speech of the Prophet ﷺ, not the speech of the companions. So there is a difference on the issue. وَالْحَدِيثِ لَوْ أَخَذْنَا بِظَاهِرِهِ فَإِنَّهُ يَدُلُّ عَلَى وُجُوبِ الْإِغْتِسَالِ عَلَى مَنْ غَسَّلَ الْمَيِّتِ وَوُجُوبِ الْوُضُوءِ عَلَى مَنْ حَمَلَ الْمَيِّتِ But if we were to take this hadith upon its apparent meaning, the Shaykh says, then it would indicate the one who washes physically the dead person, that person has to go make full ghusl, which wudu is a part of. And if the person carries the corpse, then that individual must make wudu. That's what the apparent meaning of the hadith indicates. So there are certain issues here. The first issue that Sheikh Saleh Al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah Ta'ala mentions, أَنَّ الْحَدِيثَ عَلَى ظَاهِرِهِ يُفِيدُ مُشْرُعِيَّةِ وَجُوبِ الْغُسْلِ عَلَى مَنْ غَسَلَ مَيِّتًا وَلَكِنَّ الْأَمْرُ هُنَا لَيْسَ عَلَى ظَاهِرِهِ وَإِنَّمَا الْمُرَادُ بِهِ الْإِسْتِحْبَابِ The Shaykh says, the apparent meaning of the hadith as we just said, indicates that the person who physically washes the dead person must go and make ghusl, must. That's what the hadith apparently indicates. فَلْيَغْتَسِلْ فِعْلْ أَمْرِ Command. 
But the Shaykh says, in actual fact, this hadith doesn't mean a command. It's not a commandment that the person who physically washes the dead person must make ghusl afterwards. Rather, it is mustahab. The Shaykh says in reality here, it is something which is mustahab. It is not obligatory. لِأَنَّ هَذَا الْحَدِيثِ مُعَارَضُ بِالْحَدِيثِ الَّذِي رَوَاهُ الْبَيْهَقِي Because this hadith, it is opposed or يعني, there is another hadith which speaks about this topic as well, which is narrated by Al-Bayhaqi, marfu'an to the Prophet ﷺ. لَيْسَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي مَيِّتِكُمْ غُصْلٌ إِذَا غَصَلْتُمُ In that hadith, the Prophet ﷺ says, it is not obligatory upon you to have to make the ghusl if you wash the dead person. لَيْسَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي مَيِّتِكُمْ غُصْلٌ إِذَا غَسَلْتُمُوهُ There is no obligation upon you with regards to the dead person if you wash him. So that hadith indicates there is no obligation. This hadith tells you it's a commandment, you must do it. فَالرَّسُولُ صلى الله عليه وسلم نَفَى وُجُوبَ الْغُسْلِ عَلَى مَنْ غَسَلَ الْمَيِّتْ فِي حَدِيثِ الْبَيْهَقِي So here the Prophet ﷺ negated the obligation of having to make the ghusl if you physically wash someone. فَبَعْضَ الْعُلَمَاءِ يَقُولُ So some of the scholars they say, إِنَّهُ نَاسِخٌ لِحَدِيثِ أَبِي هُرَيْرَةِ They say this abrogates the hadith of Abu Hurairah. They say the hadith of Abu Hurairah says you must make the ghusl if you wash the dead person. This one says it's not obligatory upon you. So they say this one, it abrogates the first one. Therefore, it is not obligatory upon you to have to make the ghusl if you physically wash the dead person. But some of the scholars said, it is not abrogating the other hadith. It is not abrogating it. Rather, there's a combination between them. And the combination between them is to say that the hadith of Abu Huraira says it is obligatory. And the scholars have said that if a narration tells you something is obligatory, it is obligatory unless you can find some evidence that removes the obligation to a lower level, i.e. istihbab. If you can find an evidence that removes the obligation to mustahab, then okay, you can look into that evidence. Otherwise, obligatory. So here, we do have an evidence that removes this apparent obligation to a lower level of being just mustahab, which is this other hadith, where the Prophet ﷺ said, it's not obligatory upon you to have to make ghusl if you wash the dead person. So now that, if you put it together with the other hadith, what does it mean then? One says it's obligatory, one says it's not obligatory upon you, it's not an obligation. The scholar said, put them together then. In one hadith, the Prophet ﷺ is saying, yes, you must do it. So that must then mean that it is only mustahab, that's how you combine them. The scholars say, this one says, it's not an obligation. The other one says, it is an obligation. So what do we understand? We understand that, yes, it's an obligation, meaning it's heavily recommended. It's very heavily recommended. It is mustahab that you should do that. Go and make the full ghusl if you wash the dead person. But it's not an obligation. How can we come to that conclusion? Because you have the second hadith that says it's not an obligation. So that way the scholars, they say, you can combine them and say, that it's highly recommended, but not an obligation. And that way you put the two narrations together. Because the negation, لَيْسَ عَلَيْكُمْ يُحْمَلُ عَلَى نَفْيِ الْوُجُوبِ Where it says in the second hadith, لَيْسَ عَلَيْكُمْ It is not upon you. It is not obligatory upon you, not binding upon you. They say that the meaning of that is, that it negates the obligation. It is not obligatory upon you. يعني لَيْسَ عَلَيْكُمْ غُسْلٌ وَاجِبٌ Meaning there is no obligatory ghusl upon you. It is not upon you to make the ghusl, i.e. there is no obligatory ghusl upon you to make. But as for the mustahab ghusl, then that's good, you should go do that still. But the meaning of the hadith they say, is that there is no obligatory ghusl. You don't have to make it as an obligation, as wajib. But as a mustahab thing, then yes. وَكَذَلِكَ الْأَمْرِ فِي حَدِيثِ أَبُوْ هُرَيْرَ فَإِنَّهُ يُحْمَلُ عَلَى الْإِسْتِحْبَابِ لِذَا فَهُوَ مِنْ جُمْلَةِ الْأَغْصَالِ الْمُسْتَحَبَّةِ كَغُسْلِ يَوْمِ الْجُمْعَةِ وَغُسْلِ الْوَقُوفِ بِعَرَفَةِ وَالْغُسْلُ لِدَخُولِ مَكَّةِ وَالْغُسْلُ عِنَّ الْحَرَامِ هذه مسألة. So the Shaykh says, therefore, we would conclude here that the person who washes the dead person, 
then it is mustahab for him to go and make ghusl. Recommended that you should go and make ghusl again, but not an obligation. And that is like other types. For example, a person who enters Mecca. If you enter Mecca, it is mustahab that you make ghusl before you enter Mecca. If, for example, when you go to Arafah, on the day of Arafah, it is mustahab to make ghusl before you go. When you are going to go into the state of Ihram, it is mustahab to make ghusl when you go into the state of Ihram. And there is the issue of Fridays too, which will come later on, inshaAllah. Al-Mas'ala al-Thaniya, the second issue then. قُلْنَا إِنَّهُ يَلْزَمُ مِنْ مَشْرُعِيَّةَ الْإِخْتِسَالِ مَشْرُعِيَّةَ الْوُضُوءِ فَمَنْ غَسَلَ الْمَيِّتَ فَإِنَّهُ يَتَوَضَّأُ مِنْ بَابِ أَوْلَى وبعض العلماء يرى وجوب الوضوء كما عند الحنابلة فإنهم يرون أن تغسيل الميت من نواقض الوضوء أخذا بهذا الحديث وأيضا فإنهم يعللون ذلك بأن الذي يغسل الميت لا يسلم غالبا من مص عورته إذا أراد أن ينجيه أو يقلبه وغير ذلك فلأجل ذلك يؤمر بالوضوء the second issue is, the shaykh said, that the hadith said, if a person washes a corpse, he must go and make the ghusl. If a person is going to go and make the ghusl, then obviously a part of that is to make the wudu. So that is within that commandment. It's within that hadith. That if you're going to have to go and make ghusl, then obviously a part of that is to have to go and make the wudu as well. Based upon this hadith, the hanabila. They took the opinion that washing the corpse of a dead person does nullify your wudu. And it breaks your wudu. They took this hadith and they said, therefore you have to go and make the ghusl, which a part of is the wudu. So they say washing the corpse does break the wudu. They also gave other reasons. They said because when you wash the corpse of a person, then you cannot be certain that you might not end up touching the private region of that corpse when washing it. That's a possibility too. So again, based upon that, you would have to go and make the wudu, your wudu will be broken on the other narrations that we mentioned about touching the private parts. So because of these reasons, they say that yes, it is obligatory to go make the wudu, your wudu is broken. إِمَّا اسْتِحْبَابًا وَإِمَّا وُجُوبًا كَمَا عِنْدَ الْحَنَابِلَ فِي ظَاهِرِ الْمَذْهَبِ وَالْجُمْهُورُ عَلَىٰ أَنَّهُ لَيْسَ بِوَاجِبٍ وَإِنَّمَا هُوَ مِنْ بَابِ الْإِسْتِحْبَابِ فَقَطْ But the majority of the scholars, they say it is not obligatory. It is only mustahab as we mentioned. The third issue, وَمَنْ حَمَلَهُ فَلْيَتَوَضَّى The one who carries it, then he has to go and make wudu. لَمْ يَذْهَبْ أَحَدٌ فِي الظَّاهِرِ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ إِلَى مَشْرُعِيَةِ الْوُضُوءِ لِمَنْ حَمَلَ الْمَيِّتِ Nobody from the people of knowledge, from that which is apparent, took the opinion that if you carry the corpse, when you're carrying it to go and get buried, whoever carries that corpse, that he has to go and make wudu again. Nobody took this opinion. Even though that's what this hadith says. لَكِنْ بَعْضُهُمْ يَقُولُ But some of them did say, إِنَّ الْمُرَادَ بِالْوُضُوءِ هُنَا الْوُضُوءَ اللُّغَوِي وَهُوَ غَصْلَ الْيَدَيْنِ فَهُوْ يُسَمَّ وُضُوءًا فِي اللُّغَةِ They said the meaning of wudu in this hadith isn't the actual wudu of Washing your arms and your face and your wiping and their feet, etc. As we explained before. They say the wudu in this hadith isn't referring to that full wudu. They say the wudu that is meant by this hadith, that the one who carries the corpse he has to go and make the wudu, is the wudu in the linguistic meaning. And linguistically wudu can mean just to wash your hands. Linguistically wudu, the word wudu can mean to wash your hands. So they say the linguistic meaning is applicable to this hadith. That the one who carries the corpse, then afterwards he should go and wash his hands. That's what they say this hadith means. وَذَلِكَ لِأَنَّ الَّذِي يَحْمِلُ الْمَيْتِ قَدْ يَعَلَّقْ بِيَدِهِ شَيْءٌ مِنْ جِسْمِ الْمَيْتِ وَمِنْ كَفْنِهِ That's because somebody who carries the dead person, some part of the corpse of that dead person may cling on to his hands, may stick to his hands. Or some part of the shroud may go onto his hands or other parts of that corpse. So as a consequence, because he's been carrying that corpse, he should go and wash his hands afterwards. So he washes his hands and cleans them. And this is the linguistic meaning of the word wudu. But 
As for saying that the person who carries the corpse to the burial, then that person has to go and make the full wudu again, then nobody from the scholars, from the people of knowledge went to that opinion. Rather they said it means the linguistic meaning, you have to go and wash your hands, the linguistic meaning here, not the full wudu afterwards again. And that's what the uh, scholars, the people who explained this hadith, that's what they all mentioned. So that's with regards to that. Here the shaykh seems to be saying that it is only mustahab for the one who washes the dead person to have to go make the ghusl. Uh, and it is not obligatory, but still it is mustahab. The one who does that should go and make the ghusl. And that is something recommended. But it is not something as an obligation. And as for the one who carries the corpse, then as the scholars have mentioned here, the meaning of it is to go and wash your hands afterwards, not to have to make the full wudu. The next hadith uh, of Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr, rahimahullah ta'ala, أن في الكتاب الذي كتبه رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لعمر بن حزم أن لا يمص القرآن إلا طاهر رواه مالك مرسلا ووصله النسائي وابن حبان وهو معلول In the second hadith, hadith of Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr Abdullah the son of Abu Bakr He said that indeed in the book which the Prophet ﷺ wrote to Amr ibn Hazm. And this is one of the famous parchments that was written and it had many issues written within it. That the Prophet ﷺ mentioned to Amr ibn Hazm regulations and rulings. One of those that was mentioned in this book that was sent to Amr ibn Hazm from the Prophet ﷺ, one of the rulings in it was, أَن لَا يَمَسَّ الْقُرْآنَ إِلَّا طَاهِرٌ that nobody should touch the Qur'an except somebody who is upon purification. No one can touch the Qur'an except somebody who is upon purification. That's the hadith. So the hadith then, it's narrated as we said by Abdullah, the son of Abu Bakr. Uh, and it's mentioned in Subul salam that Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr, he is Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr as-Siddiq. That he is Abdullah the son of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu. وَلَكِنَ الَّذِي فِي مَوَطَّى إِمَامَ مَالِكِ But the one which is mentioned in the Muwatta of Al-Imam Malik, أَنَّهُ Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr ibn Muhammad ibn Amr ibn Hazm. يعني من أحفاد Amr ibn Hazm. هذا الذي في مَوَطَّى مَالِكِ فَالْحَدِيثُ وَاللَّهُ أَعْلَمْ إِمَّا أَنْ يَكُونَ مَرْوِيًا مِنْ طَرِيقَيْنِ أو أن من ذكر أنه عبد الله ابن أبي بكر الصديق قد وهم. So it's possible that this hadith has been narrated in two ways because some of the people they said Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr who narrates this hadith is Abdullah the son of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq رضي الله عنه. But some of them said like in the Muwatta of Imam Malik that this Abdullah the son of Abu Bakr isn't Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. It's Abu Bakr the son of Muhammad, the son of Amr ibn Hazm, another different individual, not the son of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. So some of the scholars said, maybe this hadith was narrated twice, two chains of narration. Once maybe it was the son of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, and once it was this other individual. Or it could be that the person who narrated it is the son of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, then he made an error in that, and actually it is the second one, who was the grandson, or one of the grandsons, the great grandsons of uh, Amr ibn Hazm. So that is the correct position on that. That either it's possible it could have been the son of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq anhu, or it's possible that that is just a mistake. And the second one is actually the correct one. And that is probably stronger. So in this book that was written to Amr ibn Hazm, Amr ibn Hazm al-Khazraji al-Ansari, min Bani Najjar, that was his tribe, that is his lineage. The Prophet ﷺ sent him to Najran as a, an educator and as a guider to those people there and as a judge for those people there. And at that time when the Prophet ﷺ sent Amr ibn Hazm to Najran, His age was no more than 17 years. 
He was 17 years no more than that. Radiallahu anhu. وَكَتَبَ لَهُ كِتَابًا مُطَوَّلًا فِيهِ الْفَرَائِدِ And the Prophet ﷺ, when he sent him to that place, Najran, and he was no older than 17 years old, then the Prophet ﷺ sent him a book with rules and regulations in it. Because this Amr ibn Hazm, عنه, he'd been sent as a teacher and an educator to those people. So the Prophet ﷺ sent him a lengthy book with rulings and regulations and fara'id, the obligations and the, uh, ch- uh, the different types of charities and the different types of uh, the blood monies and other types of affairs from the rules and the regulations were written in this book to Amr ibn Hazm. And this is a book which is famous and well known to the scholars and the people of knowledge. And they have accepted it. This book is accepted and it is authentic. لِذَا قَالَ ابْنُ عَبْدَ الْبَرِّ And that is why Ibn Abd al-Barr رَحِمَهُ اللَّهُ تَعَالَى said إِنَّهُ يُشْبِهُ الْمُتَوَاتِرِ That this is almost mutawatir. That it is narrated by several, many different chains of narration regarding that particular book. قَالُوا وَهُوَ قَاعِدَ مِنْ قَوَاعِدِ الْإِسْلَامِ Some of the people even said it is a principle from the principles of Islam. لِأَنَّهُ كِتَابُ رَسُولَ سَلَّمْ Because it is the book of the Prophet ﷺ that was sent, written by the Prophet ﷺ. وَفِيهِ تَفَاصِيلُ الْأَحْكَامِ And in it are the descriptions and the details of the rules and the regulations. وَالْأُمَّةَ تَلَقَّتْهُ بِالْقَبُولِ And the Ummah has accepted this uh, and taken it on board and received it with acceptance. So it is a very famous book uh, with those rulings and regulations in it. So the Prophet ﷺ sent Amr ibn Hazm to Najran, just like he sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal to Yemen, as a guider and a teacher and a judge for those people, and he wrote this book to him. And from amongst the things that he wrote to him in this book is that the Qur'an cannot be touched except by somebody who is upon purification. So the author, Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar, he has written this hadith here in this chapter to indicate what? فَالْمُسَنِّفْ أَخَذَ مَحَلُّ الشَّاهِدِ الْبَابِ فَقَطَ The author has only written that part of the book that was sent to Amr ibn Hazm, which is this section, that the Qur'an cannot be touched by somebody except if he's upon purification. Otherwise the book was very long, but the author has just taken that snippet, that section of it, because that's the purpose of our studies here, about wudu and nullifying the wudu, etc. So he's taken that section here and narrated it in Bulugh al-Maram. So, لا يمس القرآن What is the Qur'an that cannot be touched? Ay, the Mus'haf. The Mus'haf, where the Qur'an is, uh, the, the, the written Qur'an, Al-Qur'an al-Maktub fil Mus'haf, the written Qur'an in the Mus'haf. إِلَّا طَاهِر Except for the person who is upon purification. Meaning that the person who is upon impurity cannot touch the Mus'haf. And the purified person is the one يُرَادُ بِهِ الطَّاهِرِ مِنَ الْحَدَثِ الْأَكْبَرِ وَالْأَصْغَرِ Somebody who is pure from major impurity, the ritual impurity after intercourse, and also the minor impurity, breaking wind, uh, having gone to sleep, i.e. not being upon a state of wudu basically. يُرَادُ بِهِ الطَّاهِرِ مِنَ النَّجَاسَ الْحُكْمِيَّةِ فِي الْبَدْنِ وَالتَّوْبِ It is intended by it, also the physical the, uh, the impurity which takes the ruling of impurity upon your body, for example, if you have some impurity, upon your clothing, if you have some impurity. Also, it uh, uh, intends by it the abstract impurity, which is kufr and shirk. So, a person upon kufr and shirk is upon impurity, shouldn't touch the mushaf, according to what we have read so far. Because, like we said, impurity is those two types. The impurity which is physical, the feces or the impurity in the clothes or on the body, physical impurity, or abstract impurity, kufr and shirk in the heart. So here the shaykh says, both of those are meant by this. فَالنَّجِسْ يُطْلَقُ عَلَى الْمُشْرِكِ The mushrik can be called impure. وَيُطْلَقُ عَلَى النَّجَاسَ الْحُكْمِيَةِ كَالْبَوْلَ الْغَائِطِ And also physical things like urine and feces. فَمَنْ أَصَابَهُ شَيْءٌ مِنْهَا So whoever is afflicted by any of these types of things, he is to be called impure. وَيُطْلَقُ عَلَى الْمُحْدِثْ حَدَثًا أَصْغَرْ أَوْ أَكْبَرْ And also if it is minor impurity or major impurity, all of that is termed as impure. فَالْحَدِيثِ يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ مَنْ لَمْ يَكُنْ عَلَىٰ طَهَارَ فَإِنَّهُ لَا يَمَسَ الْقُرْآنِ So the hadith indicates that a person who is not upon that purity, he is not upon in a state of wudu, 
etc. upon a state of ghusl, wudu, upon a state of purity. If he is not upon that state, then he does not touch the Qur'an. يَعْنِي لَا يَمَسَّ الْمُصْحَفْ مُبَاشَرًا He doesn't touch the Qur'an physically. وَهَذَا مِنْ جُمْلَةِ الْأُمُورِ الَّتِي تَحْرُمُ عَلَى الْمُحْدَثِ And these are from amongst the different types of affairs that are forbidden for the person who is upon a state of impurity. فَالْمُحْدَثِ تَحْرُمْ عَلَيْهِ أَشْيَاءً So the person who has committed this hadath, he's committed this impurity, broken wind, or not upon wudu, or the major impurity, there are certain things you cannot do. For example, the prayer. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, لَا يَقْبَلُ اللَّهُ صَلَاةُ أَحَدِكُمْ حَتَّى يَتَوَضَّأْ أَوْ إِذَا أَحْدَثَ حَتَّى يَتَوَضَّأْ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not accept the prayer of one of you if you break that wudu, if you are upon impurity, until you go and make wudu again. And also from amongst these affairs is the touching of the mushaf, and also the recitation of the Qur'an, and also remaining and staying in the masajid, if that is the major impurity. The major impurity, if somebody is upon that state, then he shouldn't sit and remain in the masjid. Rather, he should go and cleanse himself. And also the prayer and the uh, fasting in relation to somebody who is upon the menstruation. Fasting and praying is not permissible also. إِذَنْ مِنْ جُمْلَةِ الْمُحَرَّمَاتِ عَلَى الْمُسْلِمُ بَاشَرَةِ مَسْلِ الْمُسْحَفِ عَلَى غَيْرِ طَهَارَةٍ مِنْ الْحَدَثَيْنِ الْأَصْغَرِ وَالْأَكْبَرِ so the hadith therefore indicates that a person who is upon impurity, whether it's minor or major, cannot touch the mushaf. Sheikh Fawzan says, If however, you touch the mushaf via something else, via something else, you physically are not going to touch the mushaf. There's going to be some other means by which you are going to be in contact with the mushaf. The shaykh mentions like a stick or something. Uh, some stick or some ruler or... He hasn't mentioned that yet, we'll come to it, maybe that may be mentioned. But here all he gave the example was like some stick or something. Or like you have these, uh, the, the, what you put the mushaf in. Maybe you have that, and you don't touch the mushaf itself. But the mushaf is in one of those things. And then you pick that up, or you pick this desk up with the mushaf on it. So you're not physically touching the mushaf itself. That's what the shaykh mentions here so far. And he says, Because what's impermissible is to touch it directly. As for the statement of Allah, إِنَّهُ لَقُرْآنٌ كَرِيمٌ فِي كِتَابٍ مَكْنُونٌ لَا يَمَسُّهُ إِلَّا الْمُطَهَّرُونَ that nobody touches it, can touch it except for the pure ones in Surah Al-Waqi'ah. فَالْمَشْهُورَ إِنَّ الْمُفَسِّرِينَ أَنَّ الْمُرَادِ بِالْكِتَابِ الْمَكْنُونَ اللَّوْحِ الْمَحْفُوظِ وَلَيْسَ الْمُصْحَفِ The shaykh says that many of the scholars, they have explained that this ayah is referring to the preserved tablet. That no one touches that except the ones upon purity, not the mushaf. وَأَنَّ الْمُرَادِ بِالْمُطَهِّرِينَ الْمَلَائِكَةِ And the meaning of the ones who are upon purification are the angels. Meaning nobody goes close to the angels, uh, to the preserved tablet. Nobody goes close to the preserved tablet except the angels who are upon purification. I.e. the shayateen do not get close to it because it is preserved from them. That's what this ayah means. That's what the shaykh says here. Many of the mufassireen, they say that about this ayah. Because that is an ayah that is used often to indicate that the mushaf cannot be touched. Uh, uh, or cannot be uh, physically touched. فَلَيْسَ فِي الْآيَةِ دَلَالَةً عَلَى أَنَّهُ لَا يَمَصُّ الْمُصْحَفِ إلا طاهر إلا ما قاله ابن القيم في كتابه أقسام القرآن. So there isn't an evidence that the mushaf cannot be touched except by the pure person, other than what ابن القيم mentioned in his book أقسام القرآن أنه من باب دلالة الإشارة. That this is an it's indicative of that. It is something which is indicated from that, inferred from that, deduced from that. لِأَنَّ مِنْ أَنْوَاعِ الدَّلَالَاتِ عِنْدَ الْأُسُولِيِّنَ دَلَالَةُ الْإِشَارَةِ وَهَذَا مِنْهَا وَمَعْنَاهُ أَنَّهُ إِذَا كَانَ الْقُرْآنَ فِي اللَّوْحِ الْمَحْفُوظِ لَا يَمَصُّهُ إِلَّا الْمُطَهَّرُونَ مِنَ الْمَلَائِكَةِ فَكَذَلِكَ الْمُصَحْفِ لَا يَمَصُّهُ إِلَّا الْمُطَهَّرُونَ مِنْ بَنِي آدَمَ Because Ibn Qayyim says, well, okay, if the mushaf, the lawh al-mahfuz, the preserved tablet, cannot be approached except by those upon purity like the angels 
And that preserved tablet, the Qur'an is written within it too. The Qur'an is written within the preserved tablet too. And nobody can get close to the preserved tablet except those upon purification. Then Ibn Qayyim says, in that case, the Qur'an, which is in the preserved tablet and no one can get close to it except the purified ones, then the Qur'an we have here now should be the same ruling that nobody can go close to it except those who are upon purification. He says, if those angels have to be upon purification to get close to that preserved tablet with the Qur'an in it, then the same for us, the, the, the humans, we should also be upon that same ruling then, that we cannot go close to that Qur'an except upon purification. فالحديث يدل على مسألة واحدة وهي أن المحدث حدثا أصغر أو أكبر لا يمس القرآن المكتوب مباشرة ويجوز له أن يمسه من وراء حائل So the hadith indicates that a person who is upon the impurity minor or major cannot touch the mushaf directly but indirectly it is okay والمراد بالكتاب كل ما يسمى مصحفا من كتابته ومن قطاعه وجلده الذي عليه وبخلاف الغلاف والبيت المنفصل عنه فهذا لا مانع للإنسان من أن يحمله So the Shaykh says the Mus'haf what we are talking about is the actual book, the actual leather on the book, that is the actual Mus'haf, that is the Mus'haf, that's what we are talking about that cannot be touched directly. But as for the cover, if a person has some cover on it, then that is not meant by that, the Shaykh says. So you could touch it if there was a covering on it, some type of covering, some type of cover, then that would be okay. بخلاف الغلاف والبيت المنفصل عنه والبيت المنفصل عنه شكس the Shaykh. But the, the cover, the cover is something that the Shaykh says, if the cover is on it, then that is... Uh, there is no prohibition from a person to pick up the Qur'an if there is a covering on it, that cloth or something that the people sometimes they have, then that type of covering, uh, uh, it, it takes it out of this ruling. The four schools of thought, Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, Al-Imam Al-Malik, Al-Imam Shafi'i, Al-Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, they are all agreed upon the fact that the individual who is upon impurity, minor or major, cannot touch the mushaf directly. وَتَبْقَى مَسْأَلَةْ مَسِّ الْمُصْحَفْ وَحَمْلِهِ بِنِسْبَةِ لِلصِّغَارِ أَوْ مَسُّ وَحَمْلِ بَعْضْ أَجْزَائِهِ أَوْ حَمْلُ مَا يُكْتَبُ مِنْهُ عَلَى الْأَلْوَاحِ الْمُعَدَّ لِلتَّعْلِيمِ Then there's the issue of what about small children? Carrying the Mus'haf and touching the Mus'haf. Who might not be upon purification. Or touching parts of it. For example, a section of the Qur'an is written out on a sheet. Worksheets that are given to people to study in a class. And there are sections of the Qur'an written out on it. A photocopy of a section of the Qur'an written on that worksheet. So that is a section of the Qur'an on that worksheet now. So these types of things, what's the issue with that then? فَإِنَّ مِنْ عَادَةِ الْمُسْلِمِينَ قَدِيمًا وَحَدِيثًا أَنَّهُمْ يُدَرِّسُونَ أَوْلَادَهُمُ الْقُرْآنِ Because the Shaykh says, no doubt it is from the traditions of the Muslims in olden times and in modern times to teach the children the Qur'an. And you teach them via these means, you give them sheets of the Qur'an written on it, or other small sections of the Qur'an in these books that they print separately. So they are teachings for the children. وَالْأَوْلَادُ فِي الْغَارِبْ لَا يَكُونُونَ مُتَوَضِّئِينَ And these kids, typically they won't be upon wudu. These kids who are learning the Qur'an and they have sections of the Qur'an that they're reciting from and learning from, those kids won't be upon wudu typically when they're holding that. فَمَا حُكْمُ تَمْكِينِهِمْ مِنْ مَسِّ الْقُرْآنِ الْمَكْتُوبِ So what's the ruling on allowing them to touch these uh, sections of the Qur'an and these small booklets with the Qur'an written in it? الْجَمْهُورَ عَلَىٰ أَنَّهُ لَا بَأَسَ بِذَلِكَ لِأَجْلِ الدُّرُورَةِ The majority of the scholars say there is no issue in that because of the necessity. The children have to be taught and often they don't have wudu, or they, even if you go tell them to make wudu, they might break their wudu and they don't do anything about it. They don't get up and go make it again. Small children, that's what they will do. So because of the necessity, the shaykh says, the scholars have said that there is no issue in that, in allowing them to carry those booklets and sheets, etc. with the Qur'an on it to learn from it. If you were to prohibit them from doing that, then they wouldn't be able to learn. 
وكذلك لأنهم غير مكلفين and also because they are not at the age of burden and responsibility yet the responsibility isn't upon them yet the pen is lifted yet in any case so that is also another reasoning so that is something which is excluded from that so that's what this hadith indicates that an individual who is upon impurity minor or major major obviously but minor also he's not upon a state of wudu that he should not touch the physical mushaf directly. If it was via some other means, the mushaf is on top of this desk, so you pick up the desk, that's okay. If it is via some barrier or some other means, but to directly touch the mushaf upon a state of lack of wudu, a lack of uh, purity, then that is something which should not be done, as the Shaykh explains here, in accordance to this hadith. The next hadith, the hadith of Aisha, رضي الله عنها قالت كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يذكر الله على كل أحيانه رواه مسلم وعلقه البخاري عائشة رضي الله عنها says in this hadith of the Prophet he used to supplicate to Allah he used to remember Allah in all of his affairs in all of his situations at all times at all times the hadith seems to indicate even when the Prophet ﷺ may have been upon a state of impurity. That's what the hadith seems to indicate. The Hafid ibn Hajar has put it directly here in this section now to explain that too then. What does the hadith mean? Hadith says the Prophet ﷺ always upon all of his conditions, upon all of his states, used to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. كَانَ نَبِسَلَمْ يَذْكُرُ اللَّهَ عَلَى كُلِّ أَحْيَانِهِ The hadith is narrated by Sahih Muslim. Uh, and uh, Al-Bukhari mentions it ta'aliqan. It's a type of explanation in the sciences of hadith But we won't go into that now فالحديث يدل على أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يذكر الله بأنواع الذكر ومنها القرآن والتسبيح والتهليل والتكبير The hadith indicates that the Prophet ﷺ used to remember Allah Supplicate to Allah with all different types of remembrance Subhanallah, Allahu Akbar, La ilaha illallah All these types of supplications Amongst them, the recitation of the Qur'an. That is a form of remembrance to Allah, a form of supplication, a recitation of the Qur'an. So that is something the Prophet ﷺ used to do. وَلَا شَكَّ بِأَنَّ أَعْظَمَ الذِّكْرِ هُوَ قِرَاءَةِ الْقُرْآنِ And no doubt the greatest of remembrance is actually the recitation of the Qur'an. عَلَى كُلِّ أَحْيَانِهِ Upon all of his times, all the time. Aisha anha says the Prophet used to remember Allah all of the time. Remembering Allah, part of that is the recitation of the Quran. Whether the Prophet was upon purity and upon a state of wudu or not, that's what the hadith seems to indicate. That the Prophet used to remember Allah all the time, recite the Quran all the time, whether he was upon purity or not, whether he was upon that wudu or not. وَأَنَّهُ كَانَ يَقْرَأَ الْقُرْآنَ عَلَى كُلِّ أَحْيَانِهِ مُتَطَهِّرًا وَغَيْرَ مُتَطَهِّرًا وَلَكِنْ كي وَلَكِنْ صَحَّ فِي الْحَدِيثِ الْآخَرِ عَنْ عَلِي رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ قَالَ However, there is another hadith where Ali ibn Abi Talib رضي الله عنه said, authentic, كَانَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَى سَلَّمْ يُعَلِّمُنَا الْقُرْآنَ مَا لَمْ يَكُنْ جُنُبًا so long as he was not in a state of impurity, a major impurity. As long as the Prophet ﷺ was not in a state of major impurity, he would teach us the Qur'an. Meaning in a state of major impurity, he wouldn't do that. So he wouldn't touch the Qur'an and teach us the Qur'an in a state of major impurity. فَالْجُنُبْ لَا يَجُوزُ لَهُ يَقْرَأَ الْقُرْآنَ لَا مِنَ الْمُصْحَفِ وَلَا عَنْ ظَهْرِ الْقَلْبِ So the person who is upon the major impurity of sexual impurity, it is not possible for him not permissible for him to read the Qur'an from the Mus'haf or from his memory. Not to recite the Qur'an from the Mus'haf or from his memory. وَإِنَّمَا يَجُوزُ ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ عَلَيْهِ حَدَثٌ أَصْغَرٌ That is only permissible for somebody who is upon minor impurity. You are not upon a state of wudu. You broke your wudu from breaking wind for example. Then you can still recite the Qur'an from memory. But here the previous hadith said don't touch the Mus'haf directly. فهذا لا حرج عليه أن يقرأ القرآن عن ظهر قلب نعم ويستثنى من ذلك أيضا قراءة القرآن في المواطن التي لا تليق بعظمة القرآن Also there are certain places when you should not recite the Quran out of respect of the Quran Meaning it would be disrespectful to recite the Quran in certain places and not befitting to do so For example the bathroom obviously كالحمام ودورات المياه 
فيكون هذا مستثنى من قولها على كل أحيانه. So this would be an exception from the statement of Aisha radiallahu anha that the Prophet ﷺ used to recite the Qur'an and remember Allah upon all of his time. Obviously in the bathroom, in the toilet, in those times, then that would be an exception. That is not befitting to do remembrance in that place. وَمَا عَدَى ذَلِكَ فَإِنَّ الذِّكْرَ مَشْرُوعٌ لِلْإِنسَانِ وَمُسْتَحَبٌ لَهُ سَوَاءٌ كَانَ مُتَظَهِرًا وَغَيْرِ مُتَظَهِرٌ إِلَّا فِي الْحَالَةِ الَّتِينَ ذَكَرْنَاهُمَا And other than that, then it's upon a person, legislated for a person, um, and recommended for a person to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to recite the Qur'an in all of his times, whether he is upon purity or not, except the major impurity. Except the major impurity, then you don't recite the Qur'an, whether it's from the Mus'haf or from your memory, until you made the ghusl. Or if you're in the bathroom, in those areas of the bathroom, the toilet, etc., then again, it is not to be recited. But otherwise, then it is permissible to recite the Qur'an in the other states. وَالْمُسَنِّفْ أَوْرَدَ هَذَا الْحَدِيثِ مِنْ أَجْلِ بِيَانْ حُكْمِ قِرَاءَةِ الْقُرْآنِ And Al-Hafid ibn Hajari mentioned this hadith to show the ruling of reciting the Qur'an. فَلَمَّا ذَكَرَ مَسِّ الْمُسْحَفِ بِنِسْبَ لِغَيْرِ الْمُتَظَهِّرِ نَاسَبَ أَنْ يَذْكُرْ حُكْمَةِ تِلَاوَ عَنْ ظَهْرِ قَلْبِ So when he mentioned the issue of touching the Mus'haf, he also now mentioned the issue of reciting the Qur'an from memory. So here now we know you can recite the Qur'an from memory at any time, apart from if you're in a state of major impurity or in the bathroom and the toilet, etc. Otherwise, wherever you are here, there, it's permissible to recite the Qur'an even if you haven't got wudu. Um... So we've said now that a person who's upon major impurity, he can't recite the Qur'an from the Mus'haf or from his memory. Some of the scholars, many of the scholars, many of the scholars have taken the opinion that the woman who is upon menstruation, the period, and also the woman who is upon the postnatal bleeding, those two states, if a woman is in those two states, in one of those two states, then she takes the same ruling as somebody who is upon major impurity. So she shouldn't recite the Qur'an not from the Mus'haf and not from memory either. لِأَنَّ الْحَيْضُ وَالنِّفَاسِ حَدَثٌ أَكْبَرٌ مِثْلُ الْجَنَابَةِ Because menstruation and the postnatal bleeding are major impurities just like the major impurity of intercourse. فَالْمَرْأَ لَا تَقْرَأَ الْقُرْآنِ مُدَّةِ الْحَيْضُ وَمُدَّةِ النِّفَاسِ And the woman therefore does not recite the Qur'an not even from her memory whilst in her period or in the postnatal bleeding. وَمِنَ الْعُلَمَا مَنْ رَخَّصَ لَهَا أَنْ تَقْرَأَ الْقُرْآنِ فِي حَالَةِ الضُّرُورَةِ But some of the scholars have said that it is permissible, they've given her the permission, the license, to recite in the state of necessity. إِذَا كَانَ لَهَا حِفْظْ مِنَ الْقُرْآنِ وَإِخْشَى أَنْ تَنْسَاهُ وَيُخْشَى أَنْ تَنْسَاهُ فَإِنَّهَا تَقْرَأَهُ وَلَوْ كَانَتْ حَائِضًا مُحَافَظَةً عَلَيْهِ مِنَ النِّسْيَانِ For example, if a woman was upon impurity in terms of a period or the postnatal bleeding, then typically many of the scholars say she shouldn't recite the Qur'an, mushaf or from memory. However, some of the scholars said if there was a necessity, she can. Meaning, for example, a woman has memorized some Qur'an, and she fears that in the period of the postnatal bleeding, which could be up to 40 days, she fears that if she doesn't recite the Qur'an at all, in those 40 days she'll forget what she memorized. So in that necessity, she can go over that section she was memorizing to make sure she doesn't forget it. And same in the period, if a woman feels that in that six or seven days she might forget what she was memorizing, then in that instance she can revise that section out of necessity so she doesn't forget it. But otherwise, then a lot of the scholars, they say she shouldn't recite the Qur'an uh, in that time. And this is uh, this exception that is something mentioned by Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah. وَبَعْدَ الْعُلْمَ يَرَى أَنَّ الْحَائِضُ وَالنَّفَسَى لَا تُمْنَعَانِ مُطْلَقًا مِنْ قِرَاءَةِ الْقُرْآنِ And some of the scholars have actually even said, that the woman who is in postnatal bleeding and in the period, they are not prohibited from reciting the Qur'an anyway. Some of the scholars take the opinion they can recite the Qur'an. And there is no issue with that whatsoever. Uh, and that is the opinion of the Zahiriyyah. They take that opinion. Therefore, with regards to the woman who is in period or in postnatal bleeding, there are three opinions. The first of them, that she cannot recite the Qur'an at all, from memory or from the Mus'haf. Making the comparison to the person who is upon sexual impurity. They say it's the same thing. That's the first opinion. The second opinion is that it is allowed for her to recite absolutely. She can do it as much as she wants. That's the Zahiriyyah. 
The third opinion is that she cannot do it except in a state of necessity. That's for example when she thinks she might forget some of the Qur'an, so she needs to revise it, and in that case, then she is allowed to revise it. The Zahiriyah, from memory, yeah. The second opinion, the Zahiriyah, they say you can recite from the memory. There is no problem for a woman to do that if she's upon the period or upon the uh, postnatal bleeding. And they gave some reasons as to why they say you cannot compare a woman who's in period and in postnatal bleeding to somebody who is upon the major impurity of sexual intercourse. They say you can't make that comparison. And they gave reasons for that. The first opinion, they say no, that's the comparison. Somebody upon major impurity of intercourse is the same as a woman who's upon a period. That's a major impurity. Postnatal bleeding, major impurity. They're all major impurities. So they all take the same ruling. But the Dahiriya, they said no. The sexual intercourse impurity is different to the period and to the postnatal bleeding. So they said no, it doesn't matter. There's no comparison there. They can read. And the third opinion, Ibn Taymiyyah said that it's correct. They are the same. But in times of necessity, they can when they need to revise what they have been studying so they don't forget it, etc., then it's permissible to recite. As far as it says here, that's it. Uh, so far, major impurity stay away from the, the Qur'an. They don't, they don't touch the Qur'an. So the minor, if you have a barrier, you can touch. The minor is what was being spoken about before. The minor impurity. That with the minor impurity, a person uh, still generally shouldn't touch the Mus'af directly, but if he had uh, some barrier some other type of uh, cover, then you could touch the Qur'an, the Mus'haf. Uh, and that's where we leave it there. That section next time will start with the section which is the hadith about the cupping. We spoke about the cupping before with regards to fasting. Does it break your fast or not? Now we're going to talk about cupping. Does it break your wudu or not? Different issue. Does the cupping break your wudu or not? Is it a nullifier of wudu or not? And that will be the next section that will start on, inshallah. And also sleeping. There'll be more details about sleep. We mentioned briefly about sleep before. But now there's going to be some more hadith talking about the sleeping and what type of sleeping uh, nullifies the wudu and doesn't nullify the wudu, etc. Inshallah, we'll start with that next time.